Morning, everyone. As the message is from Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God. Thanks, Fiona. Nobody wants that list of names, uh, but you served us so well. Thank you. Uh, just before I pray, welcome to our teenagers. Uh, they are in with us this morning. We love having you guys. You're part of the church, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just a joy to have you with us this morning. Let's pray as we come to that word. Heavenly Father, this is your church, and um, we praise you that you bought this church with the blood of your Son, and uh, we praise you for the miraculous things you do in and through the church. Uh, Father, we acknowledge that this is not of our own making. We can do nothing to be the church. Uh, It is an act of God, and so we pray that once more you would be at work by the power of your Spirit through your son, uh, revealing yourself and um, building your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is so much for us in the passage that uh, Fiona just read, so much for us as a local church, so much for us as an ethnically diverse local church. Uh, So much that I'm not going to waste any of our time. We're going to dive straight in under these four headings. The problem the solution, the result, and the application. That's the journey we're going to take, the problem, the solution, the result, and the application. So we kick off straight away with the problem. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, have it open, uh, really good for us to grapple with God's word together. Chapter 6, verse 1, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Two very basic observations about that. The first church in Jerusalem is growing. And it is ethnically diverse. The vast majority of the congregation are culturally Jewish. They live in Jerusalem. They speak Hebrew or Aramaic. Now, as we know, language is the lens through which we all see the world. And they saw the world as Hebrews. They were the majority. Then there's also this minority of Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora. Roughly 10 to 20% of Jews in Jerusalem at that time spoke Greek as their mother tongue. That means they saw the world in Greek categories and they were steeped in Greek culture. 
So we have the Hebrew Messianic Jews and the Greek Messianic Jews all together in one church family. Of course, there's no problem with that. That's the wonder of the Christ who draws all people, all nations, tribes, tongues to himself. Another wonder of the Christ is that he loved this people to the point where they became a loving people. And they were growing in their love for one another. They cared for the vulnerable in their midst. They provided for the daily needs of widows who were particularly vulnerable in that society. Even more vulnerable than in our own society. All of this is to be celebrated. Of course, none of it is a problem. It's to be celebrated. The problem is that in the daily distribution of food to widows, the minority group were being overlooked. That said, there doesn't seem to be any malice involved. The solution doesn't involve repentance from willful sin. It's an administrative solution to an administrative problem. There was no intent here. There was no deliberate program to favor one group over another. This is what we might call in our everyday terms unconscious or structural bias. Even so, it's still a problem. And this problem is deeper and more dangerous than it may seem at first. We see that in the word complaint, verse 1. Now some of the meaning of that word has been lost in translation. The word is to murmur. It has connotations of grumbling. Grumbling is never a good thing in the Bible, ever. Grumbling is the opposite of gratitude. And it suggests a growing distance from God and cracks beginning to open up amongst his people. Grumbling is like gossiping against God and against the leaders he's put in place. Grumbling is the seed of division. Bias by the Hebrews was a problem. Grumbling in response by the Greeks only aggravated the problem. They didn't need to murmur amongst themselves. They should have immediately aired their grievances with the rest of the church family. And they very quickly would have discovered that there was no malicious intent here. And that would have lowered the risk of division. It immediately would have lowered the temperature in the room. But grumbling doesn't do that. Grumbling stands in the corner and speaks in hushed tones. And it isn't long before grumbling assumes the worst. And it spills over into us and them. Us and them. Now, just uh, in the long-honored tradition of side roads, let's take a quick side road. Matthew chapter 18, from verse 15 through to verse 20, gives us a process for dealing with grievances without grumbling or without gossiping. You can go and check it out later. And you must, please do. Every single one of us needs to be armed with Matthew chapter 18. That's for all of us. So please go and have a look later. Bias and grumbling, those are the problems. Cracks threatening to break this new community apart. All the ingredients of division and disunity were there. And as we're going to see, all the ingredients of distraction were also there. Because we mustn't forget, we must never forget, that the devil hates a growing church. He hates it, and he will use anything, all the tools at his disposal, to break down a growing church. After Pentecost, the first church grew fast. And by chapter 6, verse 1, it is still growing fast. 
And so it invites yet another attack from the evil one. This is the third attack that he's launched on the church. The first attack, in the first attack he used external persecution. The apostles were arrested. In the second attack he uses, or he used internal corruption. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, their deceit, their fraudulence. In this third attack, he uses the distraction of division. He uses conflict to try and draw attention away from what matters. He uses good things, precious things like diversity and growth and practical love to divide and distract. It's worth us paying attention to his methods because his methods haven't changed. I've experienced this very thing as a church leader. I've seen it full-blown in other churches, very occasionally, very rarely, thank God, in our own church. I've seen how the devil tries to distract us through conflict. It's uncanny how often the fight is about good things. It's uncanny how often the fight happens during seasons of growth. It's uncanny how often Satan uses the precious gift of our diversity against us. He still hates a growing church. And he still uses the same tactics against us that he always has. It is worth us knowing what they are, paying very careful attention to what they are. Know thy enemy. It's the first principle of war. And we're in a war. We do well to abide by that principle. So what was the problem? The presenting issue was bias in the daily distribution of food. The underlying issue was grumbling and growing potential for division and distraction. Let's turn now to the solution. The solution to this problem came in three principles of wisdom that the apostles applied. I'm going to give them to you straight away up front so we know where we're going. Humility, priority, and unity. Humility, priority, and unity. We start with humility. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. What's missing from that response? What's not there that you would expect to be there? Let me ask it another way. If people had been grumbling about you, how would you have responded? Let me speak for myself. I would be hurt, especially if my motives hadn't been malicious. I would mount a defense. I would give ten reasons why I'm not guilty, and in fact, I've been working really hard to help. I would self-justify. That's how I would probably respond. I suspect I'm not the only one in the room. Now, there may be some truth in all of that. And no one is calling for us to compromise the truth. But notice that's not how the apostles respond. They immediately own the problem. They take responsibility for solving the problem. That takes humility. They are the leaders. They are being publicly criticized. They don't use their power to silence their critics and sure up their position. They own the problem, which means owning their own shortcomings as leaders. 
And that takes humility. That's not where their humility ends. They show humility in dealing with the problem. They show more humility in coming to a solution. Notice they don't just issue a directive. They don't rule by decree. They call all the disciples together. It's not a democracy, but they want to hear from everyone in coming to a solution. It's a very wise thing to do when we think about it. The problem was one of exclusion. The first movement towards a solution is inclusion. They call everybody together, Hebrews and Greeks. Again, it takes humility. Humility is the key to solving any problem in the church. Any problem. It's the key to solving your problem with that Christian. You know the one I'm talking about? The one you're struggling with. This difficult person who's clearly in the wrong. That one. Now, as we engage with that person, if we stand on our rights and self-justify and feel entitled to a certain amount of respect and make demands, none of that serves the church. None of it. That only serves division and distraction. Humility is key. A clear sense of priority is also key. The apostles were crystal clear on their priorities. Let me read from verse 3 again. Therefore, brothers, pick out from amongst yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. As leaders, they knew, as leaders in the church of Jesus Christ, they knew that however important practical love is, however serious the threats to unity they were facing, as leaders, they had to jealously guard that which gives the church its love and its unity in the first place. They had to jealously guard that which makes the church the church. So let me ask you, what is it which makes the church the church? What makes the church the church? Let me ask it another way. Is the gift of the givers a church? Of course not, you say, don't be stupid. But why not? They are absolutely amazing at caring for the vulnerable and the poor. Why don't they qualify as a church? What's missing? The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word. It is the word that is life-giving, life-changing. That changes a person from the inside out. The word. Remember, let's, let's just do a quick whirlwind tour of our salvation history. A history of which we are a part, of which we are recipients. In the beginning, God spoke life into existence. He spoke it into existence. But mankind traded life for death and rejected God's word. And so the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He died and rose again to defeat death and give us life and call us, call us back to the Father. And now he dwells amongst us by his life-giving spirit and continues to call all sinners from death to life. 
whenever the gospel word is spoken. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel. And you remember from last week, it is objective historical fact. It is also a profound subjective personal claim on every living soul. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's your Lord. It calls us to the obedience of faith. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. That is what makes the church the church. The church is that gathering of people who lives under, by, from, and for the word of God. It proclaims that same word to a lost world. It does so in deep dependence on God himself. The apostles were all too aware that they could plant and they could water, but God alone, God alone gives the growth. And so any ministry of the word has to be done in deepest possible dependence on the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. And that means prayer. Any ministry of the word must be saturated in prayer. Otherwise, it's an exercise in futility. We're laboring in vain. As the apostles faced this crisis, they knew that whatever they did, they could not allow it to distract them from the main thing. They could not allow either the problem or the solution to distract them from preaching the gospel and from prayer. Even something as important and integral to the life of the church, something like practical love, must not be allowed to shift their focus. They must be devoted, devoted, verse 4, to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Because that's their role as leaders. And that's what makes the church the church. And that's what gives the church its love and its unity in the first place. That is not to say, and please don't hear me say, that practical love in serving tables, in distributing food to the vulnerable, is not important. We simply cannot draw that conclusion. The passage itself won't allow it. God's word in its fullness won't allow us to draw that conclusion. We know practical love is important for a thousand reasons from Scripture. Let me give you just two from our passage. Firstly, it's in the same broad category as preaching and prayer. The label used for sharing food, verse 2, is the same label used to describe sharing the word in verse 4. Service. They are both called service. Ministry is just another word for service. Serving tables or service of the word. Both are motivated by love for the Lord and love for others. And so they both carry the label service. They are just different varieties of the same thing. They may be performed by different parts of the body, but it's one body with one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles were called to preaching and to prayer. The seven were called to practical love, to caring for the vulnerable. The first leads to salvation. The second flows from salvation. They are both part of the same stream. Prayer and preaching is the root of the tree. Love is the fruit of the tree. It's one tree. 
They are both vital, integral to the Christian life. Preaching and prayer is one way to serve the Lord and his people. Practical love is another way to serve the Lord and his people. Practical love is not the number one priority of church leadership, but it is still vitally important. The second reason we know it's important is that it was already part of the bloodstream of that first church before the crisis, long before the crisis. Every single day, food was being distributed to vulnerable people. Practical love was already part of the lifeblood of the first church before this crisis, and that speaks to its importance, its centrality. What do we make of all of this? I think one thing shines through. By having a clear sense of priority, the apostles were not saying that other aspects of service don't matter. Their priority was clear. And their priority was the ministry of the word and prayer. But practical love mattered to this community. And it should matter to ours. I mean, just this past week, I was moved to tears by what I saw at Nokopila Church. They had the um, inauguration of the high school there, just built some high school facilities, and our first cohort of high school students are going through. And it was moving to tears to see what God is doing, to see the gospel root producing gospel fruit, to see the centrality and the power of the gospel working itself out in love. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And so we want to learn from the early church. We want to get this right so that we can avoid division and distraction. To do that, let's turn to another analogy that the Apostle Paul uses so often. He calls the church a body with many parts. In that body, Christ himself is the head. The leadership of the church are no longer apostles. Let's be clear about that. But we still have the same priority, the same apostolic priority. We need to concern ourselves with proclaiming Christ in full and prayerful dependence on Christ. We've been called to the ministry of the word and to prayer. That is our priority. Everyone in the church draws life, love, identity, direction, purpose from the head from Christ himself and from nowhere else. And so the priority of the leadership of this church is to constantly, relentlessly, fearlessly, and unapologetically proclaim him. He is our priority. And so the gospel is our priority. But the gospel, again, works itself out in love. The gospel needs hands and feet. The body is not healthy if the hands and feet are not healthy. The body can't function properly if the hands and feet can't function properly. What's true of hands and feet is also true of the elbow and the middle toe. Every part of the body, every part of the body, that means you. Every part of the body, that means you, has a role to play. And Paul says the obscure parts of the body are worthy of special honor. So your calling... I'm speaking to you now. Your calling and gifting might be to administration or finances or music 
or encouragement or prayer or children's ministry or hospitality. Each one of us has a role to play and our roles are not the same. If you are called to administration in the church, it is not right in the eyes of God for you to neglect that to prepare sermons. It isn't. You have another gifting, another calling from God himself. And the church suffers if you do not give yourself to your priority. Let me try and press the analogy a little bit. Every part of the human body participates in certain functions like cellular reproduction. Okay, cells are being reproduced in the collarbone and in the kidney. Every part of the body is involved in cellular reproduction. But the eye, and only the eye, is involved in the refraction of light. In the church, we are all called to various functions. But we also have a priority calling that is unique to me personally. We are all generalists and specialists at the same time. We are all called to evangelism, prayer, practical love, financial sacrifice, and so on. But some of us are uniquely gifted and called to evangelism. I can see two of them here this morning without even trying. And amongst everything else they do, evangelism must be their priority. It would be wrong in the eyes of God for them to walk away from evangelism and to join the mercy ministry in order to distribute food parcels, as precious as that is. As Christians, they must be merciful. They must be, because they are followers of Christ. But that's not their priority. If everyone makes mercy ministry the priority, who's doing evangelism? And of course, we can flip the example on its head. If everyone is doing evangelism, who's caring for the poor? The church is a body. And God has called and gifted some to give themselves to mercy as a priority. Hallelujah. And others to evangelism as a priority. Praise the Lord. You can hear I'm banging on about this. I'm making much of it. Why? Because the devil uses it to sow confusion and division in our ranks. If you are serving in the church and you don't understand this, you are very quickly going to get frustrated with other Christians. You know, I'm putting 10 hours a week into practical love and this guy can barely afford 10 minutes. Doesn't he understand the need? Now, there's a possibility that he doesn't understand the need and he needs a good rebuke. But often, that's just not his calling. And you are getting frustrated with the liver because the liver isn't a knee joint like you. Do you see? Rather, we should be thankful that here is a person called to hospitality who's going to be a welcoming face to someone who's new. And that also frees up someone else to raise finances. We should be thankful that God has made the church into a body with many parts. I'm looking at them now. It's as a body that we serve God and serve each other and serve the world. As a body, not as individual parts, but as a body. In other words, and please hear this, thank God that other people are not like you. 
the body needs all its parts to function properly. Every single part, and that means you. The solution to the problem involved deep humility. It involved a clear sense of priority. It also involved placing a high premium on unity. Now, how do we know the apostles did that, valued the unity of their diverse church? Well, think with me for a moment how seriously they took it. When the crisis emerged, Peter didn't call his secretary and say, can you handle this? The apostles summoned all the disciples together. Then they got the group to appoint leaders for this ministry so that there could be no chance of partiality. But they didn't just call for volunteers, anybody keen to hand out the parcel. No, they stipulated strict criteria. These were to be men of character and wisdom. These were to be men full of the Spirit of God. And not one or two, seven. They wanted to ensure collective wisdom be applied to this problem. They also ensured that since the complaint came from the Greeks, the Greeks must be part of the solution. In fact, they must drive the solution. The names, those impossible names, all seven of them, the the, the names that Fiona read for us, all seven of them are Greek names. Now that... That doesn't mean they were all Greeks. It just means that there was a strong Greek representation. Once all of that was in place, we read this. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles committed these men to God in public prayer and publicly delegated their authority to them by the laying on of their hands. Why did they do that? Why all this, the gravity and the formality of it all? They did it because they wanted the solution to work. They recognized the risks of division and distraction, and so they worked really hard to protect the unity of the church. They worked really hard to protect the unity of the church because they valued the unity of the church. And they valued the unity of the church because they know that God values the unity of his church. How do they know? What price tag does he put on the unity of his church. The blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility the apostles knew that the unity of the church was precious because God bought it with the blood of his own son And it must be protected. The problem was the threat of distraction and division. The solution involved deep humility, a clear sense of priority, and a high premium on unity. That was the solution. What was the result? Look there in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We have every indication that God blessed this response to the attack because the result was growth and only God can give growth. 
The word increased. The numbers multiplied. The obedience of faith expanded. God blessed the solution. The application. What does this mean for us? We are an ethnically diverse church. We are diverse in so many other ways. We, there's an age diversity. We have one generation sitting on the bottom and the next generation sitting on the top. We are growing. The devil hates diverse growing churches and he's going to use every chance he can to use the gift of our diversity against us. He will try to distract us with conflict. He will try to turn this beautiful diversity into disunity, into division. How do we respond? How do we guard against this attack? Because it will come. If we're willing to learn from the early church, then of course we're going to respond with a deep sense of humility, a clear sense of priority, and a high regard for our unity. And that means every single one of us. This is the ministry of all believers. This is not some function for the leadership. This is for every single one of us. Each one of us here this morning is a custodian of the unity of this church. So in closing, it might be helpful for us as we think about how we do this to turn each one of those principles into a question. For example... What is going to make us more humble? What is going to help us see the priority of our respective callings and the overall priority of this local church? What is going to help us value our unity? In other words, what is going to keep this body healthy? Two very simple words. The gospel. The only source of true humility is Christ. We sing it in one of our hymns. This the mystery I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. The cross says, look, look and see how deeply unworthy of God's love you are. He's there in your place. And at the very same time and in the same breath, the cross says, Look and see how deeply he loves you anyway. The only response to that is genuine humility. Pride is gone. Self-loathing is also gone. Only the true humility of self-forgetfulness. That's the only thing left. As we glory in the one who loves us like that in spite of ourselves. True humility comes from him and only from him. A clear sense of priority also comes from him. As a church, the only life, love, identity, meaning and purpose we have comes from him. He is what matters and he decides what matters. In the kingdom, the king matters. And in the kingdom, the king decides what matters. He's the one who gives us our gifts and our graces. He's the one who allocates to us our various tasks in the church. 
He's the one who has designed the church as a body and he calls each part to its specific function. He's the one who has said the less presentable parts deserve more honor. He has given us the gift of each other. Do you know that? These people are not just taking your parking space, your preferred parking spot. They are God's gift to you. He has given us the gift of each other. We dishonor the servant king if we do not honor our calling to service. Or the calling of another member of the body to their particular area of service. We are called together by him, we hold together in him. He calls each one to serve in her proper place. And that all happens as we gospel one another. As we keep speaking the word of God to each other. The gospel is our priority. Which leads us to unity. He himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. He's our unity. He brought us together, mixed multitude that we are. We dishonor him if we give the devil even a toehold to turn our diversity into division. And each one of us has a role to play. You are the custodian of this precious unity. Do you see now why prayer and the ministry of the word is the main thing? When the church leadership are devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, when they are devoted to prayerfully proclaiming the gospel, we as a body are constantly being humbled and unified in Christ. Then all the parts of the body are healthy to perform their various functions and the body itself can grow into a greater fullness and health and flourishing. But if we take our eyes off the ball, if we get distracted by good things, by worthy things, if the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ slips down the list of priorities by just one or two places, and for very good reason, even for just a moment, the church is in real danger of disintegration and division. May God forbid that it ever happens here. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you. We praise you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which brings the church into being and gives her growth. Father, may the gospel humble us, each one of us. May it focus us. May it unite us in Christ. May the gospel protect us from division and distraction. May the gospel build us up to love and serve each other in the special ways to which you've called each one. We pray this so that the church might grow and bring you glory. Amen.